we've been in a series called Better. We started it last week. And the heart of this series is really to walk through the New Testament book of, of Hebrews. We started that last week in chapter 1. If you missed out, I encourage you to check out our podcast and listen in um, just to get a sense of what chapter 1 is about and the introduction of the book and where that's heading as well. And, um, you know, this whole idea of better, the theme that we're going to see unpack over the next several weeks and even a couple, few months is, is really understanding, you know, what, what God has in store for us, um, what he's done for us in Christ, uh, you know, what that means in comparison to often what the world, culture, um, things like that will, will uh, want to offer us. And, and what does it mean, like, to really revel in the incredible vision of Jesus? So we're going to jump into that today. And we're going to start right away, just reading Hebrews chapter 2. And, and then I'll, I'll jump into the message. So uh, ju- we'll just jump right into the scriptures. And as we read through it, we, we try and read it at length so we can, when we walk through a book uh, in our Sunday gatherings, different to topical series, uh, we like to... I, you know, we could like to say that if we've gone through the whole book, then over the course of that time, we've read through it publicly too, which is greater together. So let's read that. Hebrews chapter 2. You can follow on on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, open them to that, to that passage. And uh, let's start right away. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will." It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And in in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subjected to them. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Well, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted." Let's just pause and pray. Father, um, 
we take this moment and ask you to grab our attention, intersect with our hearts and lives. We're thankful for your word and um, into our hearts today. Um, we say welcome. Welcome to how you will speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, man, I tell you, reading Hebrews out loud like that, it just feels like it's already kind of the sermon, you know? And you can just take it and listen to it and, and almost just, just sit with it for a while. Here's the sense, like, the, the writer here is concerned the writer is concerned with the people he's writing with. He's concerned for them. Um, he's concerned for them and that they're drifting away from this faith or from this commitment that they've made to following Jesus. He, he's concerned that they're, that they're drifting away from their faith. And there's interval warnings in Hebrews. There's a couple of times, well, several times, four or five times throughout the letter of Hebrews or this message in Hebrews that, that the, the author just, just pauses and says, I want you to get this. I want you to pay attention here. I need to tell you this. And it, it feels like a warning. And here you can tell by the words as he starts off this section. He says, pay most careful attention to this. And he says, do not drift away. This word drift is, is a word that you would use at sea for a boat. You know, if a boat is, is not anchored at harbor, as big as it might be, it can just slowly drift and follow the current. Uh, if, if, if no one's attending to the boat or you're at sea and no one's actually steering the boat or at the wheel of the boat, the rudder of the boat, the boat will just drift into whatever direction it, you know, the water takes it. Have you guys ever been on a lazy river? This last summer I was on a lazy river at, at Granby Zoo. It's a fun thing. You know, you kind of sit there. You could literally sit there and do nothing, like read a book, have a coffee, and just kind of go through the lazy river, unless someone bumps you over and then your coffee will dirty the water. But, and I didn't have a coffee with me. But anyways, here's the point. The tube just, the tube just drifts. You sit there and you get really comfortable because it drifts and then you feel the warmth of the water, but they catch you because there's these certain sections along the lazy river that they spray freezing cold water out as you're going there. And, and like, see that, that girl there? She's screaming her head off. She's freaking out. And so I, I, if I'm going to do the lazy river, I didn't take the raft ride, right? I didn't take like down the mountain ride. I like that stuff. But if I take the lazy river, I just want to be calm. And so what I do is I get a little nervous getting towards the cold stuff. Actually, my sister-in-law, Angie, who was here today and sharing, like she hates the cold stuff. She screams as she gets close to that stuff. But I thought I'd fill you in with some info about her since she shared. But sorry, Angie. Uh, but here's the deal. When I get close there, what do I do? I use my feet and my hands and I push myself off the wall and I, I kind of paddle a little bit or I push myself off somebody else's tube. And if a woman or a child falls over, whatever. But I am... <laughs> safe from the cold water that's going to spew me. Why, why do I do that? I don't want to drift. So I pay attention and I don't just go the, you know, the flow of the water to save myself. Do you ever feel like there's moments in your life where you're just drifting? You're just, you're, you're not really paying attention. You're not making the decisions you're meant to be making and you're just drifting. And maybe, maybe this month you got your credit card bill and you're like, oh my, how did I spend $3,000? I only have 1000 to pay for, the, what am I going to do? And then you start figuring out ways and line of credit and I'm going to pay this extra and then, oh, that's going to be 20%. That's crazy, ridiculous. And what happened? You, you drifted, right? You just, you just spent money and, you know, they, statistics tell us that we spend 18% more when we use a credit card at McDonald's, right? That's why they like us to use cards because we don't think, we just 
drift, right? And so that happens financially. It also happens when you're all with friends and you have a donut here or a scone there, and that's kind of my life these days. And then slowly you're like, oh, I drifted into four more pounds or ten more pounds or whatever the case is, right? This is how we drift. We don't pay attention. It happens in relationships. We can drift into an unhealthy relationship. We can drift into a destructive relationship. We can drift out of an important, healthy relationship because we don't pay attention. It's subtle. It's subtle. So imagine these, the context of these people that are reading this, this, this message of Hebrews or this, this letter we're reading. These first century Christ followers, maybe 60 or 70 AD, that live in an area that is Rome. And the context is Rome was a pluralistic society, different pagan religions. The Jews of that area were a small segment. Let's say a million people in Rome at the time. Jews are maybe 5% of that whole, if at all, a really, really small, small, small percentage of that. And Christ followers, people who would begin to follow Jesus, were very minute percentage, half a percent, quarter of a percent, what that might look like. So imagine these new people following Jesus at a time when they were such a small group of people within a huge lake of pluralism, um, economic systems, uh, different worldviews. Imagine how difficult it was to claim that Jesus was Lord in that culture. That Jesus was Lord even though the emperor called himself Lord. That Jesus was Lord, even though they came from a religious background, that many said, well, I don't know if I, don't know if I believe this Jesus guy is the Messiah. But they're claiming that he is. And there's this danger that, that sets in, that you can tend to drift. You can tend to, in subtle ways, drift backwards or sideways. And difficult following the way of Christ. But sometimes you can tend to drift. And how does Hebrews confront this drift? How does this author confront this drift that's going on that he's fearing for these people he's writing to? Well, he starts in Hebrews 1, as we read last week. He says, God has spoken through his son, and he paints this picture of what happened in and through Jesus. He says he's spoken in the past with these advanced sketches, these messages through various people, various ways, but now he's spoken through his son and he paints a picture of what's happening through Jesus and we get a glimpse of the beauty and power of Jesus in chapter one and how amazing he is. We get this clear picture of who God is through Christ and we realize, we start to realize what we would miss if we don't pay attention. What we might miss if we don't pay attention or respond or perhaps even drift slowly, subtly drift away. And then Hebrews This next chapter comes in and the author continues with his message and he says these words and he's basically saying, if God has spoken through Jesus, make sure you listen and respond to his message. In verse 2, he says that we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation? In other words, he's saying, if God spoke in the past through angels. Now, what they mean by that is there's a couple of references in the Old Testament where Moses on Mount Sinai, when he got the Ten Commandments, there's a couple of texts like in Deuteronomy and other parts of Scripture that says angels. God used angels to, to bring this 
this, this, the law and this message from God to Moses. And so this writer says, if God spoke through angels in the past and missing it meant missing out on God's purpose for your life and in some ways punishment, how much more would it be so vital to pay attention to this climactic message that God sends through Jesus, his only son? And we get what the message is because a couple of times, right in these first few verses of chapter 2, the author says, you don't want to miss this great, what does he say? This great salvation. He talks about, again, this salvation that was brought to us, given to us. It's the good news that includes the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus announced and facilitated and brought, ushered in God's very kingdom. And it's an, an invitation to the world to come to know who God is through Jesus. And it's, it's the grace and love that God pours out in Christ for the forgiveness of humanity's sins and brokenness and pain and rebellion in the sense where some who recognize it are in relief. Oh God, thank you for bringing this. I don't know how to deal with my brokenness, with my sin, even my rebellion that I'm recognizing towards you. But it's also those who don't recognize it that need this rescue. Salvation is God's rescue plan for humanity. But it's so much bigger than that. In verse 5, the writer says something incredible. He says in verse 5, it's, it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. This is, this is a, bigger, like a bigger picture of salvation. That it's not just the forgiveness of somebody's sins or your sins or my sins. God has a future hope where he wants to include us in in his future plans, in the world to come, in the restoration of all things, what he started in the garden and creation, where his original plan for humanity will be fulfilled. And he says salvation includes this world to come, this restoration of all things, and he longs for us to be a part of that. His ultimate purpose is where we would actually reign with him, with his son. How, how does God do that? What's the message and sometimes we miss this, but the message is not just words. The message is also the way the words came about. And the message is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the message, and Jesus is the method. In fact, you can't really separate the message and the method. You can't separate Jesus' words and Jesus' ways. You can't separate what Jesus said and what he accomplished. You can't separate that stuff. The message is the method, and both the message and the method are Jesus Christ. So how did God do this? How did God bring this amazing message of salvation about and offer it to us? Well, I have three, three thoughts here. And it's a little bit teachy this morning because we, we kind of want to walk through this and, and, and get a, a full sense of what this passage is saying. And here, here's the first thought. The way God did this is the king shows up. Jesus is king. Jesus is represented even here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as king. And the king showed up in person. In the past, God spoke through these other sketches, other ways. But now today, he speaks through his son. The king shows up presently. Verse 3, he says that, you know, where is this? How shall we escape this, ignore the salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord. Jesus, he shows up. When I got married, the day I got married... We, um, 
you know, everybody, often people order flowers for their wedding. And so um, we ordered flowers, Frank and I, and we, we, got a, we thought we got an awesome deal. We did. And it was a place that like kind of wholesaler, retailer, mixed place, you know, had their own greenhouse and stuff like that. And, you know, it was a great thing. The day of the wedding... Uh, you know, often the photographer goes to the, the groom's f- house first and then the bride, you know, give the bride a little bit more time to get ready and things like that. And so anyways, they never, the flowers never showed up like to, to my house where I was, you know, where, where I was. I was at my uncle's house at the time and we're wondering and I call over at Franca's house, did flowers get there? No, and they were just not showing up. So um, I thought, well, we'll call. I tried to call, no one's answering. And my brother and I dressed up for the wedding like, it's my wedding day, so we're dressed up fully. We show up in this greenhouse in Cote St. Luke, and in person. And we're like, where are the flowers? And so they're like, what are you, what's happening? And so, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense just to call or try and arrange. Like, the day is that day, and we needed the flowers. So in our suits and everything, before we're headed to the church, we go over face-to-face, where are the flowers? It makes Better sense when you show up in person, right? It just, it does something. God showed up. The king shows up in person. And we know what that means, how special that is. When I had my 18th birthday party, and I have a twin brother, my brother and I was both of our birthdays, obviously, and so we're celebrating, and we were out, uh, out that day, and our friends and family surprised us. We walk in, and it was fun. We saw friends and family, and so we go up to our room to change, and my older brother Rick and his wife are hiding in the corner of my room. Now, that would you know, be abnormal for some reason in other situations. But on that day, they surprised me. They live in Toronto, not Montreal. And they thought, we're going to come in person and celebrate Dave and John's birthday. They showed up in person. The king showed up in person. And then as Jesus announces this message of salvation, it spreads to those who hear him first. And we read that in verse 3 as well. It says that, which was first announced by the Lord and then confirmed to us by those who heard him. And a little side note, we had said last week, we don't know who wrote this letter. And we know that Paul didn't write it. And this is one of the reasons we know Paul didn't write it because Paul wouldn't have said those who heard him because Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Paul would have said, just like Jesus revealed himself to me. But, Paul, but the writer says those who heard him. So a little side note and why we don't say, uh, we don't necessarily say that Paul wrote this letter. But then more happens as the king shows up and, 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 and Jesus you know, announces this message and those who hear him spread it on, then it grows. And it's the work of God's spirit and the church that ends up spreading this amazing message of salvation. And I love what the writer says because the writer says, God testified to this message by signs and wonders and various miracles. So like some amazing things happen to prove that God has spoken And then the writer says, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's like the gifts of the Spirit are gifts that God gives his church to love each other, care for each other, serve the world. And this writer says, that's proof that God showed, that God spoke to us. It's like when we serve and people serve in their gifts and we serve the world and we care for each other and we love one another and we invite someone over for supper to encourage them one evening, we send a card to someone, God uses a specific gift in our lives to bless the church or his mission. This writer says when that, all that stuff happens, that's proof that God has spoken through his son because his son is changing hearts and they're coming together as his body and they're serving one another in the power of the spirit. Salvation is at work. I think that's a beautiful thing. Not only did the king show up, the king suffered for humanity. 
The king suffered for the sins of humanity. Verse 17 says that, that um, where is that? That he might make, just the last part of the verse, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And several times in this passage, the writer tells us that the Messiah, that Jesus suffered for humanity. He made a way for people to discover their truest purpose in God by going the way of suffering and the way of the cross and the way of humility. Now, sometimes you wonder, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and often, you know, in a theology or a doctrine, you know, a doctrinal paper or something, people might say, well, that means that Jesus was like the payment for our sins. And we can get stuck on one metaphor of what that looks like. But I just, I just want to show you guys something today that's so amazing to me that, that we, we can often get stuck on one metaphor and feel like this is the only way that God tells us how Jesus or why Jesus died on the cross and what it accomplished. But in this, just in this one passage, there's five metaphors of the atonement. There's five pictures of what Jesus actually did, what he actually accomplished. And I want to just share them. So here's the first one. Just put it up. It's substitution. In verse 9, it says, By the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. Jesus, in our place, as a substitute, tastes death or tasted death for us. That's a metaphor of what God or what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that metaphor is the substitution metaphor. But there's another metaphor. And the next metaphor is this. It's what's called the Christus Victor or that the Christ is victorious. And in verse 14 it says, By his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus is victorious over death, over the devil. That's Christus Victor. He is, he is accomplished and won and overcome. And what he has done on the cross has been a victory. Here's the second image, this, or this third image. It's a ransom image. And we get the word ransom. If someone is kidnapped, then they're asked for a ransom or a ransom price or something like that. And so here's this. Free those, that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what he had done in that atonement, that that reconciliation on the cross, is that he frees all of us who are held in slavery by by our fear of death. And he becomes our ransom. Here's this this fourth image. He makes a payment. It's, It's a penal payment. Uh, it's a payment for something that, that has been done. It's like a, a punishment, and Jesus becomes that punishment. He becomes that payment. And so we read in verse 17 that he might make atonement, or another word for that is propitiation, for the sins of people. Jesus becomes the payment for the sins of humanity on the cross. And here's the last image. It's moral influence. Verse 18 says, He himself suffered when he was tempted. So this is Jesus' life. His actual physical life, he suffered. He actually was tempted so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus becomes a model, an example, an influence in our lives. And you know why, I, you know, often theological writers or, you know, some people will say, well, it's only this, or it's only this, or maybe it's only this. What I love about this, this letter that, of the Hebrews is like we see all five metaphors of what Jesus did on the cross. That just makes the picture bigger. That makes the accomplishment bigger. It helps us understand that. And then the writer goes on to say, he says, that Jesus has become the pioneer for salvation. The pioneer. He goes before us. He makes a way for us. It's kind of like this. It's like if all of us were waiting to be 
Like, we're, we're, let's say we've been a community and we're hurting, we're suffering. Think of the movie The Maze Runner. They're stuck in that maze, you know, if you've read the book or seen the movie. And they're just, they're a community and they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're making it by, they're learning to survive, they're figuring it out, but the maze is in front of them and they don't know how to get past the maze. Well, someone comes up, you know, and joins their community and says, enough is enough. Guys, I think we can get past the maze. And so imagine a maze or imagine a wall or imagine a big forest and this pioneer says, we're going to make it through. And the pioneer cuts through the wall, cuts through the forest, creates a path and out on the other side is hope, is salvation, is rescue, is the world to come. And Hebrew says, Jesus is the pioneer of salvation. He made a way where there was no way. He went through the wall that was between us and hope. He cut through the thick forest that none of us could possibly go through. And Jesus comes and his life and his death and his sacrifice becomes a pioneer for that. The king suffers for humanity. Here's the last one. The king springs ahead. The king secures our future. This world to come that this writer talks about, Jesus already went there in his resurrection. In verse 8 and 9 it says, At present we don't see this. At present we don't see the fullness of what this will look like. But it's, it's evident. It's coming. But the writer says, but we do see Jesus. At present we don't see this. We don't see, God, how you're going to use humanity to rule and reign in this world to come. But we do see Jesus. Why does the author say that? It's there because when we see Jesus, we realize Jesus has already gone before us. Jesus has already literally gone into the future and secured the future. He secured this hope. That's what it means to say when it says that he's now crowned with glory. He's leading. He's ruling. He's reigning. And yet we don't fully see it in all of its fullness in our time. It's coming. It's promised. And Jesus has already secured it. And what's the outcome? Verse 11 is so awesome. Verse 11 says, Both the one who makes people holy talking about Jesus, the one who makes people like us holy. And those who are made holy are, the same fa- are part of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I love that. That's just, this is the outcome of what Jesus does. We become his brothers and sisters. We become the king's brothers and sisters. We become God's family. How lavished we are that we can be called God's children. That the king, Jesus, would call us his family, his brothers and sisters. Imagine these first readers. Last week we talked, we created this fictional character named Antonius who would have come to faith but then been struggling with, because of the culture around him, because of his, his old synagogue friends maybe saying, what are you doing, Antonius? This is crazy. Like We have this, this structured, perfect system here of religion. Why are you walking with this group of people? They're, they're so small compared to us. We're small, but they're really small you know, in Rome. And why would you do that? And imagine Antonius then hears, starts to hear this vision of Jesus, this picture of Jesus, and then this picture that says, the one who has made you holy is also taking those people who are making holy and says, you're part of the family. You're, you're, you're a brother and sister of the king. And that's why the author is so passionate about painting this picture. And literally, literally, like it's, it's like if, he, if the author could be screaming it out saying, don't miss this. Pay attention to this. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. So what does that do for us? What do, what do we do with this? Besides it hopefully being 
just a beautiful picture of what Jesus has accomplished. I think we need to understand what causes us to drift. What, what causes you? I can't answer that for you. But I think you need to reflect and say, what causes me to drift? What has caused me to drift? Or what often tempts me or causes me to drift away from what it means to follow Jesus, to drift away from this life that God has in store for me. Because let me tell you something, culture couldn't care less if you drift or if I drift. Doesn't care. I I love culture. I love our world. I love our city. But to be quite honest, I love my neighborhood. But none of those circles that I just mentioned could care less if I drift away from me following Jesus. So we need to understand what causes me to drift. What, what, What is it in my life that often will grab my attention where this author would say, Dave, pay, pay, pay attention. God has spoken through Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus. Pay attention. And so what we said before, confront the drift. If there's something we can just like leave with, it would be this. Confront the drift. Here's a couple of things we can do. One is take responsibility for what you believe. If you're following Jesus, if you're just starting to follow Jesus, or if you've been following Christ for years, take responsibility for what you believe. In other words, don't let someone else just steer your faith. I don't mean don't listen to anybody and only listen to yourself. Like, don't interpret the Bible in a bubble. We do this in community. But take responsibility for what you believe. Get a a clear picture of Jesus for yourself. The writer says that that, that the Lord himself has announce this message. Get to know Jesus. Get to know the author. Get to know Jesus' life. The apostles later, as these first disciples heard Jesus, they started passing that message on. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they wanted to take responsibility for what they believed in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit and the church, as we're in the church, we nurture each other, we care for each other. Why do we encourage people to join a community group? I believe in that small band of, of, of believers or friends and people, they encourage each other as they take responsibility for their belief. As God speaks to them and works in their lives and they live that out and they encourage each other. And the Spirit of God works in that and we encourage each other. You're taking responsibility for your belief today by being here, but you need to take it a step further and say, I I need to wrestle with the words of Christ. I need to get rooted in the words of Jesus. So take responsibility for what you believe. And here's this last piece. And I think this is the real struggle for us in Montreal. You know, these Christians who read Hebrews weren't that different from us. Urban setting, pluralistic culture, economically driven, um, you know, complicated politics. All, all kinds of stuff that we wrestle with in Montreal today. And yet, the author's saying, pay close attention to Jesus. What's, what's, what's the author trying to say? He's saying, let Jesus take cross your life. Let Jesus cross your life. And where necessary, let Jesus adjust your life. Let Jesus cross your life And where necessary, let Jesus adjust your life. And I don't just mean morally, like become a better person. I mean, what are the things that when Jesus crosses your life, that he wants to revolutionize in you, that he wants to transform in you, that he wants to change in you, that he wants to give you different vision about. And some of that is your behavior. But I think even bigger is, what's your view of the world? What's your view of our city? How How do we engage what God is doing? What kind of worldview is God giving to us? Because 
we live in a pluralistic culture that struggles with Jesus. Now, our culture doesn't struggle with when, like, when we say Jesus is good, Jesus feed, fed the poor, Jesus loved the leper. Culture loves this stuff. You can tweet that and nobody will bug you. We can, you can tweet all that awesome stuff of Jesus. Jesus uh, fed, the, fed the, the hungry. And your friends will high-five you, like you, retweet it. You can say Jesus loved the poor. You can say Jesus hung out with the sick and lonely. That's all cool. That's, very, that's called slacktivism in our culture. We like it. Cool. But when you actually say, I follow Jesus as Lord of my life, that becomes different. Because Jesus actually demands something of us when we follow him. That we would adjust our life to his commands. There's a finality to following Jesus. In other words, his message is final. And we need to let his message, our lives be adjusted to his message. That when Jesus crosses our life, our life will be adjusted to him. If we really trust his authority. It's the same with any relationship. It's the same. I just saw some moms in the back that have brand new babies. And, um, and I'm thinking like, you love that baby and your life, you don't realize it, but you're going to have to adjust part of your life to that baby, right? Would you be mad at that? No, you love that baby. That baby's part of your life now. Or someone maybe gets married and says, imagine someone gets married and says, I'm really glad that we're married, but I'm not going to do anything to adjust my life to you. Wouldn't that be weird? Well, why'd you get married? Right? There's a sense that when you love somebody, when you welcome them into your life, you allow them, not to the extent of Jesus, but you allow them to cross your life, and then you say, how will I adjust my life to this person I love? When we come to believe in Jesus and we're captivated by him and we see the beauty of who he is, we adjust our lives to what he calls us to. And, and, and here's this. You know that Jesus adjusted his life for you? That the scripture says, though he considered equality with, he considered equality with God, could have been something to be grasped. But instead he took on the form of a human and walked the earth and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, that means the king, God's son, adjusted himself to give you life and life to the fullest and the world to come. And when, he, when we make him Lord of our lives, we adjust our lives to his leadership. But he adjusted his life for you and for me. The king did that. The king who showed up, the king who suffered, the king who springs forward into the future, the king who conquered death, adjusted his life for you and for me. Tim Keller shares a story from a woman years ago, and it captivated so much this image that he could never let it go. And this woman shares the story, and it's kind of like a little bit of a science logical story, but imagine that, that this paper here, the thinness of this paper, let's say it represents the distance from the earth to the sun. The distance from the earth to the sun is 150 million miles away. But let's say that this paper represents 150 miles, million miles, and that's, this is the distance from here to the sun. And so the distance from the earth to the furthest star in our galaxy is about 70 feet of these papers stacked. 
So that's the difference between the distance from here to the sun and the difference from here to the furthest star in our galaxy. And then imagine the distance across our galaxy from one point of the galaxy to the other point of the galaxy, and that's 310 million miles of papers stacked. That's the difference from one paper to 70 feet stacked of paper to 310 miles of paper stacked. And then listen what Hebrews tells us, and we read this last week, that the sun sustains all things through his very word. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. I mean, the distance from here to the sun the distance from here to the stars, the distance in our galaxy, and then with one phrase, the sun is the exact representation of God, and he sustains all this by the power of his word. And this lady told Kim, Tim Keller, and often what we do is make this person our personal assistant. Would we do that with the person who holds all this by the power of his word? Yeah, check mark. How can you serve me today? No, that's, that just doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. You don't invite him to be your personal assistant. I think Lord is the only logical attribution to Jesus. And I invite you to stand as we come to a close this morning. And um, as we reflect on this, think about this today. You know, have you ever been on a long road trip and you get tired? Anybody ever fallen asleep? I remember... Uh, or almost fallen asleep. I was driving, uh, and I, I don't mind driving, but when it gets really long, I do get a little bit tired. And we did Florida once. It was like 15 hours one day, 15 hours another day. And, and it's, you know, it's just, so I remember, you know, I get, to, I remember those moments where you're driving and you, you know you're falling asleep. You're like, okay, I'm my eyes, and you wake up and you hit yourself and you put something on and you're, you know, and, and then you realize if I, if I fall asleep, I'm going to kill everybody in the car. Not a good scenario, you know? And um, so you're just doing your best. You're like, I don't want to drift. And so sometimes that happens or you fall asleep and you're thankful for when you're on one of the roads that as you slowly drift, they, they're called sleeper lines. You ever hit them? It's like, go, 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 go. You you're like, what the, and you're like, what the heck happened, right? Because you, you just forget that they actually are there. And these are called sleeper lines. Well, there's a more official name for them, and you can Google it. But um, our, th- these lines are there to tell us, don't drift. Stay on course. Follow the course. Keep the journey. And sometimes, like the writer of Hebrews in this moment, needed to stay and stop and, stop and say, please pay attention. Please don't drift. Please keep walking Please keep moving because it's so vital. For this, it's so vital that this is there because you could literally kill yourself if it didn't stop you. And this writer is equally as adamant about this. Please listen to the message of Jesus, the message of salvation, because you don't want to miss this. It's life or death. It's purpose or meaninglessness. And so today as we draw to a close, I want to encourage you to pause in your hearts for a moment. And ask the Lord to show you the areas of your life where you are prone to drift. Say, Lord, draw me back. Give me a bigger vision of who you are. Maybe you're here today and, and um, 
you have been learning about Jesus, you've been discovering who Jesus is, you've been coming to our gatherings, maybe you've been reading the, the Gospels at home or on your own, but you've never really looked at Jesus for all that he is, the one who sustains everything with the power of his word, and really said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. And if that's you today, I, I invite you I ask you, I will almost beg you to say, will you look at Jesus for all that he is and look at him and respond to him because he's saying, will you follow me? Will you trust me? Will you put your life in me? And he promises, he promises that he will transform our lives. He gives us salvation. He gives us a future. But we need to respond. Would you respond and say, Jesus, I call you Lord today. Jesus, I put my trust in you today. I do not want to make you my personal assistant. I want to call you Lord. I want to trust you. Let's pray. And if that's you here for the first time, or maybe you've been reflecting on this for a while, and today God has been grabbing a hold of your heart, would you just briefly pray these words or maybe use um, the thoughts that I'm sharing to express your heart to God? It could be a simple start. And you can... Simply ask Jesus to lead your life. To come to him in repentance. He went to the cross for your sins. You can say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I acknowledge, I acknowledge that you, the king, suffered on my behalf for the forgiveness of my sins, for the new life that you long to give to me. I welcome that forgiveness. I thank you for that forgiveness. And I want to call you Lord. I put my trust in you today. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I want you to lead my life. I've come to discover who you really are. And I say yes to your invitation to be a follower of you. That's your prayer. Or if you've prayed that, the Spirit of God is responding to you and you can begin growing a life in him. Father, we pause and just say thank you for this amazing vision of your son Jesus, of King Jesus. Wow, how you became king on our earth through Christ. It just blows our minds. And we thank you, we thank you that your son showed up in person. We thank you that your son has suffered has tasted death on our behalf, has become our substitute, has been the victor over sin and death, has been the ransom to free people from the fear of death, has been the payment for rebellion and sin, has been our example through the cross. We say thank you. Lord, may that vision grow so clear and so big in our hearts and minds. And when we are led to drift, may you draw us back to pay attention to this amazing, huge message of salvation. And we just tell you, Lord, in this moment, we reaffirm it. We allow you to cross our lives and we will say yes to how you invite us to adjust our lives to your Lordship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.